before he and I had got back together, I was dating some doctors. And so I would go and trade sex for prescriptions. I was I was selling the pain pills at first, you know what I mean? But then I would like take one here and take one there. And, and before you know it, I'm, you know, addicted to these little blue pills, which became the love of my life. What type of pill were they? Roxy's. Roxy 30s. Okay, yes. Oxycodone. Yes, yes. 30 milligrams. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Ended up, you know, getting like really hooked on those while I was pregnant. And so ended up coming clean to my doctor at about seven months that I was addicted to these pain pills and that I, I was taking more than what they had been giving me. And they said, okay, well, we will, you know, put your, we'll put your daughter in the NICU for a couple days and we'll just, you know, watch her, observe. I'm sure it'll be fine. She should be out, you know, a couple days. And so that, that is not exactly what happened. Uh, what happened was, as soon as I had her, they took her from me. They would not let me be in the same room as her. I was not allowed to see her for the first couple days. Um, she actually ended up being in the NICU for six weeks. And they had her on phenobarbital uh, for seizures and morphine to wean her off of the pain medication that I was on. That was probably the most devastating thing that has ever happened to me. Like, I can the just, guilt and shame. I can tell just by the way you're saying it, it's still a very tough subject to talk about. Yeah, it was one of the hardest things in my life. Um, and you know, I couldn't understand why I couldn't stop using, even for my own daughter. What was wrong with me. The power right? of addiction. I, I couldn't understand. Mm-hmm. What's happening, guys? Welcome back to episode 19 of the Tonksy Media Podcast. Today's guest I'm super excited to introduce. All the way from Georgia, USA, this girl has lived a very traumatic life from prostitution to drug dealing to addiction and also prison up until eight and a half years ago where she found recovery and a new life following the almighty God. Please welcome Jamie Toll. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm super excited. No problem. No problem. Um, look, I come across you. Um, you're obviously in in the same network as I am um, with social media, you know, the uh, recovery addiction um sort of network there's a there's a whole bunch of us now you know all over the world and it's um yeah it's a beautiful thing you know so um look I just want to hit you with one one question straight up um why did you agree to come on this podcast and and share your story to share a story of hope to encourage people and to let people know that no matter what you have been through that you can literally achieve your dreams and do whatever it is that you set out that you want to do in life, no matter what has happened in your past. Awesome. Great answer. Um, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. All right. So let's, um, let's, let's take it right back to the beginning, Jamie. Let's hear about the childhood of, um, of Jamie Tall, the upbringing and, and sort of what led you down the path that you eventually went down. Um, my, the childhood, I feel like, was a little different than a lot of other people's childhoods. Um, I moved around a lot. My parents moved a lot. I went to 12 different schools by the time I graduated high school. Actually, by the time I got to high school, I had been to 12 different schools. And, um, you know, grew up um, alcoholic father. Uh, my mom and dad kind of had a... Uh, toxic, toxic ish relationship. They, they got pregnant with me when they were like 15 and my father was involved with some things. Uh, yeah, Yeah, I don't, I don't hold it over them because (laughs) at 15, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm 43 and I can barely be a mom. Right. (laughs) So, uh, at 15, I'm sure was just wild for them. So, um, my father grew up in Massachusetts 
and he was involved uh, with the Italian mob. So they owned a bakery and they used to rent out the upstairs for the mob to do gambling. So my father was always getting into trouble one one way or another. Um, He wasn't a great criminal. (laughs) Um, And it caused him and my mom, you know, having like a lot of fights. And uh, I saw a lot of things as a child that children shouldn't see. And so it, it brought me to my very, very first addiction, which was escape. And escape to me was just, um, you know, basically living a different life than the reality that I was currently in, whether that was escaping through books, through video games, through um, writing stories. I used to journal a lot as like a small child. Um, I was always journaling and I kind of like would make up this different reality so that I didn't have to live in the reality that I was in. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, um, so you, you say you went to 12 different schools. Um, that must have been, you know, like along with your education and things, it must have been a bit scattered all over the show. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, people who have this, you know, brain, uh, some people call it a disease, some people don't, this, <laughs> this brain issue of addiction, I feel like it is already hard enough for us to feel like we belong, to connect with people, to feel comfortable in our own skin. So going to so many different schools, I felt like I could never make friends or connect with people. And, you know, when we moved, we made like big moves, right? Like it wasn't like we moved uh, down the street. It was like we moved from uh, Massachusetts to Georgia, to Georgia, to New Hampshire, (laughs) to New Hampshire, to Florida. You know what I mean? And they were very quick. It It generally... (laughs) Yeah, and it generally wasn't like a planned move. It was just like kind of like usually a quick, quick move um, because of, you know, the reasons we were moving and things. So it was, um, it was really hard on me, you know. And then by the time I got to high school and made my first group of friends, right, it was the first people who truly accepted me and loved me exactly how I was. And most of them had traumatic tasks as well. And they were drug dealers and drug users. Yeah. What was the sort of, uh, you know, so so you say you, you this is high school. Um, what sort of years was this sort of, if we can just put into a... Um, a bit of like a bit of insight on what what sort of gap of years this was. This would have what probably been late eighties, early nineties, or um, um, high school was ninety four, nineteen ninety four. Okay, mid nineties. Yeah, right. Yeah. What was the? Um, I'm really interested. You know, obviously being from Australia. Um, you know, I've actually been to America for on a work trip when I was seventeen um, to South Carolina. Um, so, but I, you know, back then that was before my addiction started. But I'm, I'm really intrigued to know what sort of drugs, um, you know, were around at, around that time, and and what did you start to use, and um, and all that. You know, it started off with just kind of like high—I call them high school drugs. You know, so it was uh, weed and and mushrooms and acid, and you know, um, I remember going to a party. Um, and they were, you know, passing around weed and, uh, they were drinking these, um, these big, they're called Boone's, (laughs) Boone's Farms. I don't know, um, if you have them, but they were like, it was like colored, like beer and wine and these like big, big bottles. And, uh, so they were like passing them around and I remember drinking and smoking and being at this party. And I remember I was so nervous because I really wanted to fit in and I really wanted people to like me. And then, you know, once I started smoking and drinking, all of a sudden something clicked in my brain and it was like, I was funny and I was charming and people liked me and I felt nervous or anxious. Yes. Like, like, Oh, this, is what I've been looking for my whole entire life, this feeling, you know? And um, I can remember uh, 
one of my my best memories was tripping on mushrooms with my two best friends and watching Austin Powers <laughs> all night long <laughs> and just like laughing hysterically, you know, like yeah. that was when it was fun. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can definitely relate there, you know, um, and it was the same sort of drugs too, you know. Uh, not so much the mushrooms. I was sort of scared away from those from stories from my dad. You know, he was very anti-drug and never had addictions or anything like that, but he had bad experience on mushrooms when uh, he was young and sort of scared me away from it. I eventually tried them later on, but, yeah, the acid, the weed, um, you know, ecstasy was a big one also um, over here in Australia. But, yeah, okay, so... All right. When did the, you know, when did things start to get a bit more ugly and um and you know and, and and you start to actually fall into an addiction, I guess. So it kind of was progressive for a long time. I was like a functioning, you could say, functioning addict. Um, you know, graduated high school with like a, a three point two. Um, got into a really good college. Um. <laughs> graduated college while I was using drugs. I was a, a cheerleader for the basketball team yeah, wow. yep. <laughs> while I was using drugs, you know, um, got a degree, um, you know, all of this. So it was like still in a place for many years where it was somewhat controllable. I mean, it would get, sometimes things would get a little out of control, but I was always able to reel them back in. I always worked. Um, so, you know, but I was always doing something, you know. Um, Escaping reality. You know, I went through, yes. Like, yeah. I went through, uh, like, different different things. Like, I went through an ecstasy thing, right? For I think for, like, a whole, like, five months, I raged. Like, every weekend, you know what I mean? And it was just, like, I, I think I had, like, dyslexia by the end of that, that <laughs> five-month streak. <laughs> like everything was, like, backwards in my brain. It really messed me up. Um for a while but I was the girl with the Janko jeans and the glow sticks and it was just so fun you know what I mean I didn't ever want the party to end like and that was the difference between like me and everybody else like everybody else was like okay time to go home and I'm like no let's do more yep, yep. <laughs> and that was kind of something that like separated me from my friends and um <clears throat> you know I did I did really well, you know, I've got some, some management jobs with my degree and then um, got pregnant with my son and was, you know, maintained sobriety through that pregnancy yep. and, you know, was really like, I'm going to be a good mom and, and I'm going to do the right thing. And then some, some things happened in, in the relationship between me and his father and you know, something I realized is that I use relationships just as addictively as I use drugs. So yeah, codependency yeah. issues and all of these things um, had, uh, you know, food addictions as well. Struggled with that on and off between binge eating to not eating at all, you know. Oh, wow. So yep. uh, always taking everything to one extreme or another. Yeah. Uh, and that was. You know, I feel like that's like a, a regular trait of, of people who struggle with addiction. Definitely, so, yeah. It's like a chemical when, imbalance in your brain, hey. It's like it's either crazy hard or, or not at all, you know. It's Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm I'm, I'm exact same. Other. I am exact same, you know, yeah, hundred percent. But yeah, continue, sorry. Um so my my kid's father ended up going to jail and I was trying to manage everything on my own. I was working as a waitress at the time at an Applebee's and I was having my mom watch my son and, you know, I still couldn't pay all the bills working every day at Applebee's. So I kind of got into um, a, a different kind of work. I had a girl who worked with me at Applebee's who also worked at a strip club and she was like, hey, you can come over here and you can make your rent in one night, you know? And I was, you know, kid's dad was in, in prison. <laughs> and um, and so that was what I thought was a great idea at the time, <laughs> which, yep. which which wasn't a great idea. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, at that time, I thought it was. 
Yeah. And, you know, the, the wildest thing, I had so many issues, you know, with um, self-worth and self-esteem and rejection issues. And when I got this job at the strip club, it was like, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was worth something. I was like, well, if these people are want to pay me to dance, then I must have some type of value, right? And so that just developed into like this whole kind of like really torturous mind thing that I got into where when I worked at the club, if I only made $30 on stage instead of making, you know, $100 on stage, or if I only made $5 on stage, you know what I mean? Like that was how I started to calculate and value my worth, which brought me into this very toxic self-hatred cycle, which I feel like was already underlying. But, but through that, I started to be able to see how I, how I valued myself and how I counted myself worthy, which was completely wrong. But for some reason, I developed this belief system that I was worth what other people thought about me. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, um, you know. So, what what age what age were you around here when with the stripping started? And um... twenty five. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Still a very, you know, immature <laughs> mind. You, you, you could say, I suppose. Um, where was the drug level at at this point? Was Is this where things started to sort of go down that ugly road? Um, Actually, I was still, I had gone back to school. So okay. I was actually like in college as well, taking college classes. Um, and of course, when you work at strip clubs, what do you do the whole time? You drink. And then after work, I would go and I would, you know, try to find some people to do an eight ball with or whatever. I was doing cocaine pretty heavily then, you know, and it was like, I had like no connection and no friends, which was, which was so interesting for that time. That was probably one of the loneliest times in my life, you know, because it was like, you couldn't really get a relationship because who wants to date a stripper? (laughs) Really? You know, (laughs) I'm just going to bring her home to mom, you know? And, uh, and then friends all, they were there while I had drugs. Sure. They were all around while I had drugs. But as soon as the cocaine ran out, so did the friends. So it was it was really hard. And, and you know, through that, I made a, a lot of connections at the strip club, met a lot of very wealthy men, and I started escorting. So I would, you know, date several different men and that was basically how I kind of like paid my bills. And in all of this, it's still, I'm still in this escape alternate reality, just like I was as a child, right? Because my reality is, oh yeah, I'm dating this guy today. I'm dating this guy tomorrow. I'm dating this guy on Wednesday. You know what I mean? And I'm living, still living this, this life that is not even real, Uh, almost like a different character every day (laughs) it was i i I don't know how i was able to keep up that whole time to be honest with you but um eventually i ended up meeting some friends and they were you know into escorting as well and we started doing some things um i tried to make another career change (laughs) decided to go to school for something else because uh, I was always, I was, I was always trying. I just yeah. couldn't, couldn't seem to get it right. Yeah. You know? And also, so I, 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 I suppose like, that is where the chemical imbalance was. You couldn't find that middle balance point. You know, like um, just by by listening to it. And you know, this has given me a, an ex, a great insight. You know, because I was always that drug dealer that hung out at the strip club that would, um, you know given the strippers the drugs and this and that. You know, and um, so like it's a very very intriguing to hear from your side of the fence. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, definitely different perspective. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so I, 
I supported myself like that for a long time. And then eventually I got arrested. Um, it was actually the day before my graduation. I was about to graduate college. I was about to get a, a certification for um, massage therapy. And I was really, really excited and went out to go do, you know, to go make some money and um, ended up getting busted in Polk County, Florida on a cyber sting. And I got blasted on the news for like three days straight. Um, the guy from Dateline was there. Uh, it was very humbling, very embarrassing, and um, really kind of put a halt to everything that I had been doing. Yep. And, you know, of course my family found out what I was doing. And it was probably one of the most traumatic things in my whole entire life that had happened. Definitely. That would have thrown yourself, everything that you were battling already would have just multiplied by a thousand for sure. Being publicly mm-hmm. pub- publicly um, humiliated. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely humiliating. Um, and so... I ended up getting a job at a Denny's as a waitress after that and made a another geographical change with my mother. My father had passed away. And so my mom moved to a different state and, you know, because my son was still small, I went with her and, you know, again, I'm going to do the right thing this time. I'm going to be a good mom. I really want to do this. And my mom moved, you know, into this neighborhood. And of course there's a crack dealer that lives next door. And, you know, I get a, get a job waitressing at, at, at the Applebee's and within two, three months, I'm working at a multicultural bar that's selling cocaine, you know, out the back door and I'm, I'm dancing on the bar for money, <laughs> you know? So yep. it just, it was like, you know, geographical change, but guess what? Wherever Jamie goes, there she is. Yep. 100%. So, yep. And so just kind of stayed in that like party lifestyle, went from toxic relationship to toxic relationship, trying to fill the void inside of me, right. Trying to keep up, keep myself, feeling worthy and having, you know, pride and, you know, in all the wrong things, trying to fill my self-worth and self-esteem and all the wrong things and by, by all the wrong standards. And eventually um, me and my kid's dad decided that we were going to get back together. And uh, within a couple weeks, I got pregnant. Um, with my daughter Delilah. So and same same father? So same yep. father, yeah. Yep, yep. So at this time, you know, I I had gotten a little bit into pain pills and um, you know, before he and I had got back together I was dating some doctors and so I would go and trade sex for prescriptions. And this was, of course, before everything was linked, right? So you could be going to several doctors and, and systems weren't, weren't linked. Yep. Um, so I was, I was selling the pain pills at first, you know what I mean? But then I would like take one here and take one there. And, and before you know it, I'm, you know, addicted to these little blue pills, which became the love of my life. What were they? What were they? And, uh, what type of pill were they? Uh Roxy's, Roxy 30s. Okay, yes. Oxycodone. Yes, yes. 30 milligrams. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yep. So, um, ended up, you know, getting like really hooked on those while I was pregnant. And it came clean to my doctor because I, I had a prescription um, because I had some, like a couple things, you know, in my body going on, not, not major, major things, but where I was prescribed pain pills, you know, on a low, low level. And so ended up coming clean to my doctor at about seven months that I was addicted to these pain pills and that I, I was taking 
more than what they had been giving me. And they said, okay, well, we will, you know, put your, we'll put your daughter in the NICU for a couple days and we'll just, you know, watch her, observe. I'm sure it'll be fine. She should be out, you know, a couple days. And so that, that is not exactly what happened. Uh, what happened was as soon as I had her, they took her from me. They would not let me be in the same room as her. I was not allowed to see her for the first couple days. Um, she actually ended up being in the NICU for six weeks. Wow. And they had her on uh, phenobarbital for seizures and morphine to wean her off of the pain medication that I was on. Yep. And that was probably the most like devastating thing that has ever happened to me. Like I can just, the guilt and shame. I can tell just by the way you're saying it, it's still a very tough subject to talk about. Yeah, it was one of the hardest things in my life. Um, and, you know, I couldn't understand why I couldn't stop using, even for my own daughter. What was wrong with me? The power right? of addiction. I, I couldn't understand. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I didn't know. I just thought I was pathetic and I didn't have enough self-will and I didn't love my kid enough, you know, and so blamed it all on myself, went home, tried to take the cheap way out and eat a bottle of Klonopin, uh, woke up a few days later um, and basically, you know, had to go through the whole defects thing. Um, baby daddy, you know, he, he was using heroin um, and I hadn't, hadn't really crossed that bridge yet. I had only messed with pain pills. So he was out there pretty bad. And uh, so we ended up breaking up and my mom took my daughter. My family was so angry with me. I mean, they did not want anything to do with me. It's they, a horrible feeling. Just, hey, being mm-hmm. there myself for sure. And that, that put me into a spiral, but also it also brought me to my very first detox. So I ended up going to a detox facility and stayed there for a couple of weeks. Um, went into like a, a detox and then like a 30 day program. I uh, made it about halfway through the 30 day program before I had, you know, one of my friends come pick me up and, and take me out. And this kind of went through a cycle of eight different times that I went through detox and I would go to go to detox and maybe stay somewhere for a week, two weeks, three weeks. And then every time I would get out and I would say, okay, I'm cured. Now I can use drugs just like everybody else. And that wasn't the case. So every time it brought me back to the same exact situation vicious cycle (laughs) Mm -hmm. and yeah so that you know that happened over several years got myself into some real bad situations got involved with some really dangerous men who um ended up trafficking me and went through that for a couple of years and then one day I got arrested. We call this my my rescue when I got arrested. And uh, it was just a regular Tuesday night and I got pulled over and I had a schedule one, two, three, four, and five on me, which is just a little bit of everything. Can you, you just know, give variety me a, pack. Yeah, and in, 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 an insight on what that actually means. I read it in your bio and I was just a little unsure. Sure. It's, it's obviously a different saying here in Australia. So um, schedule one, two, three, four, and five. So I think, let's see, I had Xanax, Percocet, meth, um, weed. Let's see. Xanax, Percocet, meth, weed. And what else? Heroin. Okay. <laughs> and heroin. <laughs> five, yes. So 
just a little bit of everything. Okay. Yeah. And so the police, you know, I thought that I was like pretty clever. I had it sewn inside of my purse lining, you know, yeah. so I thought that I was safe and I was like pretty smart, you know, and to, but then of course they called the dog and oh. <laughs> that didn't work. so the, the dog got me and, um, yeah, and I ended up going to jail Wow! and I went to jail and, you know, I remember going into jail and, and I had been to jail a couple of times, never for anything really major, you know, um, I didn't really have like a record or anything, anything that I had gotten in trouble for. It was like a do, you know, as long as you don't get in trouble for the next year, then, you know, we'll take it off your record, whatever, whatever. So this is my first time having some, you know, some we call it big boy charges. Right. Yep. Uh, and so I had to go in front of this, this judge and I remember the judge looking at me and he said to me, I'm going to put you on a four year felony probation. He said, do you understand what that means? And I was like, no. And he said, that means for the next four years, you cannot fail a drug test or get in trouble or you're going to go to prison. And something finally went off in my brain and I realized I don't know how to do that. And that was the, the moment that um, I realized I need to do something different. I don't know how, I don't know what, but something has got to be different. And so I ended up going into a sober living community. Okay. Yep. So, um, it was very interesting. I live in Athens, Georgia, which is home of University of Georgia. So the whole, it's like a small town, big city vibe. <laughs> I yeah. call it crunchy granola, very hippie-ish. Um, and this whole place is basically UGA campus. So the sober living that I was on was on a big campus. And I walked into a house with, 13 other girls and it was like a you know sober sorority type thing and I was just like this is so weird (laughs) what to think about it but I knew that there were these women in here who were trying to do the same things that I was and they told me that they were going to love me until I could learn to love myself yeah And so I followed their suggestions and they really just like raised me up and grew me up. You know, at this point, this is 2015. Okay. So July, July 20th, 2015 is my sobriety date. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. And um, I remember walking in there eight days before my belly button birthday and thinking, lame birthdays from here on out. <laughs> and uh, that, <laughs> that was not the case. You know, that was not the case at all. Um, it was really hard at first, you know, because I, I didn't have a, a car. I walked in there. I had four shirts, four pairs of pants, <laughs> you know, some panties, a couple bras, a couple pairs of socks, a pair of shoes. Like, that's it. I had nothing, nothing. Yeah. And I was so used to relying on, you know, my body, selling my body to get the things that I wanted. I had to actually go out and get a job. You know, I had to go walk, walk and walk to the bus stop and take the bus to go fill out applications. And it was, it was so humbling. <laughs> you know, Reality to, check. To hey, it this. was like a, a, a full blown reality check. Like, yeah. Welcome to the real world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, you know, in the sober living, I, I shared a, a room. There was, you know, four girls to a room and I had a I had a closet that half of it was mine and I could put my stuff in it. And, you know, I had my own bed and it was it was mine and it was safe. And I had a bathroom that I could take a shower and I didn't have to worry about, you know, when I was going to be able to use the bathroom. 
and there was a kitchen and there was so much food in it. The little things, <laughs> hey. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Unreal. That's that's a beautiful story, yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. It was it was it was it was such a peaceful feeling, you know. It was just yep. like so peaceful. And the best thing of it all was that I wasn't alone anymore, right? So I was in this house with these thirteen other women on a campus with a hundred and sixty people trying to get sober, men and women, right? So it was like this whole community, and you know, I just I just followed their direction. You know, they told me you have to go get a job, and by the way, you can't wear that. so they they taught you you have to take a shower every day you have to you have to brush your teeth you have to make your bed you have to do your laundry get a job because you have to pay your rent (laughs) and that was you know something very different for me but um yeah i did you know i ended up getting a, a job too two minimum wage jobs and you know was able to support myself and i i took the bus every day and i became you know, like independent, you know what I mean? It was like, um, I was, I was able to support myself. I became self-supporting. I didn't have a, a whole lot, you know what I mean? But I had enough for what I needed and I had, you know, friends and, um, they told me to get a home group. They told me to get a sponsor. They told me to go to meetings. They told me to do service work. And I just simply followed everything that they told me. And I ended up staying on that sober living campus for three and a half years. Um, in that three and a half years, I ended up starting my own business. Um, wow. I ended up becoming a recovery coach for the state of Georgia. I ended up, um, you know, restoring relationships with with my family. Um, I got a car. <laughs> I saved up enough money to move. Uh, I didn't have a car for the first 18 months of recovery. So uh, I understand the struggle. Oh, <laughs> you know, definitely, and my family, yeah. uh, definitely, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My family wasn't, you know, it made me like so jealous because some of the, the girls, their parents would come see them on the weekends and take them to get their nails done and help them with things. And my family was just like, mm mm figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, you know, um, so yeah, I began doing steps. Um, I'm a huge advocate for step work, whatever, you know, program you're doing step work is, is amazing. Um, faith is part of my pathway. Um, service at 89 days sober. I started telling my story. I went to the crisis intervention unit here, which I had been to twice. So it was really cool to be able to go in and speak and say, hey, I used to be here too. I was sitting on that side. Yep. And Very here inspiring. I am now, yep. you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. So began speaking out and telling my story. Um, you know, there, there's just been so many amazing things that have happened um, being in recovery. Uh, when I did move off the Sober Living Campus, I moved just um, five driveways down into where the staff lived. <laughs> so <laughs> into these townhouses. Uh, so I was still like very uh, protected and connected, you know, um, but on my own. Um, and I ended up becoming president of the board of directors for that treatment center then. Wow. And so that was really awesome to be able to give back in that sense. Um, started a program at, a nonprofit that serves women coming out of prostitution and human trafficking and um, started serving there as a recovery coach. And also I created a protocol for massage for people in recovery. So people who are, um, you know, in a a stabilization phase for like mat meds. So massage for them, trauma-informed massage, massage for women who need to learn healthy touch who have been abused. So we created these protocols, took them to uh, Georgia Council on Substance Abuse and implemented them in these recovery organizations and um, started teaching the at the local massage school here. So I teach the students at the local massage school how to do this and they go into the organizations and do it for their clinic hours. 
So that's really cool because it's like multiplied. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I always feel like multiplied. Sorry, I just want to ask you something before you continue. So you had you didn't actually explain when the day that you um, obviously you you follow God, you, you're a Jesus um, follower, and um, you know your your life evolves around that sort of um, path. Now, when was the big day? When did you see the light? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Because there's always a great um, story was, behind this, you know, whoever it may be. Like. Yeah. So it was um, probably somewhere in between. I have a few moments. Now, okay. these, are, these are very cool. Somewhere in between step two and step three. Um, I want to say it was January of 2016. So I'd been in sober living for six months. And my friend brought me to a church. And, um, it was a church like I had never been to because I was brought up, um, Catholic. So I was brought up Catholic (laughs) and my friend brought me to, um, an apostolic church and I had never seen people worship (laughs) and dance and yell and shout and be so (laughs) fired up for Jesus. And I was just like, Wow, because in the Catholic Church, it is very reserved. Yeah. <laughs> it's Dan Neal, you know, so it was just very, very different. And it, like, something inside of me, you know, was really tired of the way that Jamie was running her life. Something inside of me was like, you know, in step three, it's like, turn my will and my life over to the care of God, Right. And it's like, I just got to this point where I was in this perfect position where I was like, I want more of Jesus and less of, less of Jamie. So they did a call for baptism. Okay. And I, it was like my hand just like shut up. Like I didn't, I'm telling you, I didn't even do it. It just, <laughs> it just shut up. And so they put me in this freezing cold baptismal pool. <laughs> And, uh, you know, prayed and, you know, we baptized you in the name of Jesus. And I came, came up and they were like, oh, we didn't get you all the way down. You have to go down one more time. <laughs> I was like, this is 30 degrees in here. It's so cold. <laughs> Put me under again. And um, it was so wild. You know, after I got out, this group of women had came up to me and they, put their hands on me and they started praying over me and it was like their eyes turned like this ice blue color, like illuminating when they were praying over me and they started to tell me things about my past, things that, you know, I needed to let go of things that I needed to forget about and that God was going to do something amazing with me like in the turnaround and that I needed to focus on God and focus on my future. Don't talk to those people again. Don't go back to that way of life. And it it was just incredible to me. Like, and it, I felt like at that moment, it was like the heavens opened up for me. You know, I, that was when everything, I'm never going to tell people that following Jesus doesn't come with a cost. You know what I'm saying? I'm never oh, going to be like, oh, follow Jesus. And your life is going to be amazing. No, it's but right. yeah. for, that season, for that season, God really did open up the heavens for me. And he taught me about faith. And I had this amazing roommate and she was like, maybe like 10 years older than me. And she, she taught me, you know, about like reading the Bible and she taught me about the Holy spirit and she taught me about faith. And, um, I really started to learn, you know, like how to, how to move in faith, how to pray, how to ask, how to build relationship with Jesus, which is something that I never learned growing up because I learned about, you know, the rosary and these different prayers, not that there's anything, you know, nothing against Catholics. I think Catholics are beautiful and their churches are beautiful and, you know, but for me, I just didn't realize anything about the relationship and about the Holy Spirit. And what did it really look like to have the spirit of God living inside of you? It's amazing. And so becoming like in a 
partnership with Jesus. And so it, it was, it was just amazing. So, um, I actually did a four year discipleship under a deliverance minister, um, which was so incredible. He was a counselor, counselor at the sober living that I went to. So I studied, you know, under him and he taught me, um, you know, self-deliverance and taught me about relationship with Jesus. And there was a couple things, you know, in growing that relationship that were really pivotal. Um, somewhere, I think it was my fourth and fifth step, which is where you write down your inventory, right? So I had this whole inventory in this notebook and it was, um, you know, fear inventory, resentment inventory, and sex inventory yep. in a five-star notebook. Right. And like, like three quarters of it full of all of this stuff, right. That I, that I had done. And so I uh, go over it with my sponsor. My sponsor says, I want you to take it home and meditate on it and see what God wants you to see in it. And so I take it home and I remember sitting there and I remember, you know, saying, God, you know, you want me to turn my will and my life over to you. My thoughts and my actions. You want me to fully surrender to you. But I'm sitting here looking at this five-star notebook full of all these terrible things that I did. <laughs> and according to the teachings that I learned growing up in a, in a religious setting, it doesn't look very good for me right here. <laughs> it doesn't look like you were really happy with the way that I have been living my life. And um, I really need to know, like, how do you feel about me? How do you really feel about me? If I'm going to trust you, I need to know. Like, because there's some things that happened where I want to know where you were. Like, where were you when this happened? Where were you when I was getting trafficked? Where were you when my daughter got taken from me? You know, like all of these things. So it was like a really heavy conversation, you know, where I was just crying out to know, like, what is this amazing love of God? What is it, you know? And the next day I went over to my mom's house. I got to go see my, my daughter and she was sitting across from me um, at the kitchen table and her, she was like four or five. Okay. So her hair is a mess. She's got food all over her face. She's got a broken crayon and she's just scribbling away. And I am looking at her with this adoration, like this love just beaming from every fiber of me, right? Like, oh my goodness, this is the most beautiful Goosebumps. thing I have ever seen. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to me in that moment and he said, that is how I feel about you. And that changed my life wow. forever. Ever changed my life because I began to understand how God felt about me yeah so that sounds like that sounds like the 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 main that the the actual point where the everything was lifted you know and um i literally just got full goosebumps you saying that like it was um you know that moment you just looked at your daughter and and seen that and then had a reflection on yourself and your relationship with god that's just like yeah definitely sounds like the the main pivot point there Mm -hmm. It was yet the, you know, revelation and, and then, you know, I just, I just began to be able to, to hear his voice to like, to, to really like hear. And, and, so, and I'm not saying it's like audible, like sometimes I hear, you know, him, but, but, you know, in my, in my inner, with my inner ears. Yes. <laughs> my inner yes. Ears, I right? know. I know exactly <laughs> what you're saying. It happens to me too. Like, um, yeah, it's like I've I've come to the realization that it's it is your own inner voice, your own inner ear, as you just said, that is speaking to you. You know, you know, I always believed like hearing people speak of God because it was only a couple of years ago that I started to follow. You know, when I found my recovery, and I always was expecting this face in the sky, or you know, like because I was far from a, a Catholic upbringing, far from any type of churchy upbringing. I was um, complete opposite, you know, but, you know, I always pictured this face in the sky or this loud men's voice in my head, but it's like so much more than that. And I've actually still, still, still on the crawl, but I'm, you know, definitely on the way. That's for sure. Like, so it's amazing speaking to somebody like yourself that's, that's, um, you know, got such a horrific background, but such a, 
great pivoting point because of the love of God, you know? Yes. And, you know, God will never let anything come upon you unaware, right? So the intentional listening, I'm reading this amazing book right now from Marty Darakot on, it's called Echo Heaven. And it is um, taught, it teaches about like fine tuning to hear God's voice. And I've, I've been able to do some like interesting exercises that it's, you know, and like really like this intentional listening. So it is, it's been really, really cool. And then like, just like partnering with God, you know what I mean? Like the way that I created the, the whole recovery massage, right? Like I was just one day I was like, you know, God, I'm, I'm really passionate about recovery and I'm really passionate about massage. And I think that we should make this protocol called recovery massage and we should do it on people in early recovery so that they don't relapse and so that they can learn healthy touch and so that they can learn that they're worthy of self-care. And then literally like, it just like, I went and I told, you know, somebody that has a nonprofit and she was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Here's the money. <laughs> Set up the room. Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just like, bam, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's okay. crazy. It's so, so crazy once you start to click on, you know, it's like, like I said, I'm still very early stages of it, I believe, but I can see such a big picture ahead, you know, and it's like, um, there's a reason that, you know, he's brought you and I together just, you know, s- straight up, like, um, but yeah, look, look, Jamie, we are starting to head towards the end. Is there anything else that you want to add on the end of your story? Um, you know, I just want to just make sure, you know, let people know that, you know, when you do come into recovery, uh, just like when you come into your walk with Jesus, you know, you want everything to be like perfect and amazing. Um, but there are difficulties that come ahead. I have actually, some of the most difficult things I've, I've been through have been in my later years in recovery, you yeah, know, yeah. Um, just finalized a, a divorce, which w- was probably the hardest thing I've done in a really long time. You know what I mean? But like, but no matter where you are, like in your recovery walk, like you you will have people that will walk with you. And when you get through it, through these hard times, like whatever it is that comes, you will be able to um, help other people like who have, who are walking on that path. So you will gain wisdom and lessons and you will not be alone because you will have not only a recovery community, but you will have the love of God and the comfort of the Holy spirit. And you know, you will be, it, they will give you the strength to get through whatever it is that you're going through. So you just have to remember to keep going forward for moms who have not gotten their kids back. I want to just point to this. My son is 19 years old and he just moved back in with me. I had not ever, I had not had him by myself since he was like three years old. Wow, that's (laughs) amazing. And he comes and moves back in, right? And I am mom. (laughs) So hearing, you know what I mean? So many women who have lost their children and it's been so many years, eight and a half years in recovery. And, you know, this, this is how long how long it's taken for, for my son to come move back in. So even if they grow up, believe me, they, they will still need you. You know, can I just <laughs> cut, cut, cut in there, sorry, because, um, you know, this that, that actually hits home a little bit at the, at the moment, um, you know, and, and I no doubt my sister will listen to this, but she's, um, she's in another the state that I, we, I was born in, um, Tasmania. I no longer live there anymore, but she's actually going through it right now. She's, um, she, she found recovery for three years, and then has just she's about six months back into heavy heavy addiction um her partner's been gone to jail for drug importation and the kids her four girls all under the age of eight um are on the on the uh on the top of the fence of heading to child protection you know i mean mind you when when she was an, an addict last before she found recovery that first time her kids spent the first three years with child protection so at that hearing that advice right there is um it's definitely big you know and I, I truly hope she watches this because she's really really not well at the moment you know mm-hmm. yeah. yes it and that is you know also the guilt and shame that comes with being a mom 
is so heavy and so hard. I'm not saying it's different for dads, but I know like I can attest for being a mom. It kept me in addiction so much longer. So don't let that guilt and shame keep you out there. Believe that you are worth more. Your kids, you already know that your kids are worth more, but you are worthy of being their mom. Yeah. Excellent. That's, that's awesome advice. Um, you know, have you got any advice for maybe somebody that hasn't led, headed down the life of, um, of you know, drugs, crime, prison, um, you know, male or female, I suppose, but, um, you know, that, that was maybe starting to, you know, starting to use drugs and, and stuff, you know, what, what's some advice you can throw out there for, um, you know, somebody that hasn't, hasn't lived that life yet? I would say that keeping your dreams and aspirations in front of you is is a, a better focal point than keeping drugs and alcohol as your focal point because um, there are so many people who are dying. I have lost so many friends, and it is just not safe to use anymore. It's just not safe. Um, it is not safe, and we need you in this army, believe it or not, <laughs> you are a part of an army, a, a, a spiritual army, an army and in the kingdom of God, which you, would you believe or not? Um, and, and we need you and we need you to help fight and to help pull other people out of the fire. So if you're falling into the fire, you need to get out because we need you to help pull, pull people out, be the good example, help, help, you know, set up the, the programs. If you're falling into these you know, this drugs and alcohol and it's just fun and you're in this stage where you're like, oh, well, this is just fun. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal because you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know if you might um, do a bump of cocaine and die of a fentanyl overdose. You just had eight overdoses at a bar the other week from people doing cocaine. Yeah. So it's just not safe and this is not the time there are great things that are coming ahead for people um there there this this year you know if you will follow the the right path and you will follow god this is going to be um an amazing testimony for a lot of people this year amazing that that's um yeah such such great advice you know and um, i hope i hope it uh you know, it goes a long way and, and people get something out of it for sure, you know. Um, last but not least, Jamie, where can people find you? Um, can you give us a bit of a shout-out on your socials? Um, and, and yeah. Yeah, um, you can find me, uh, Jamie Tall, on YouTube, on Facebook, uh, TikTok, Instagram. So just Jamie Tall. Um, I have uh, a pretty big community if anybody um, has any experience uh with gang stalking and um interesting things with the spiritual side of meth and the demonic side of meth uh, you can find a lot of information in a big community of people who have suffered from that on my youtube um but yeah it's just jamie tall on all on all platforms excellent all your links will be uh in the descriptions um yeah guys look that is uh jamie tall all the way from georgia usa i hope you guys enjoyed it and um yeah thank you jamie really appreciate you coming on thank you glad we finally got to hook up definitely for sure thanks for listening guys cheers how do you know if god is talking to you it says in the bible in loving kindness i have drawn you A lot of people think that when God is speaking to them, that he is going to come with a hammer and with lightning bolts and thunder and tell you how terrible you are. I want to tell you a story about my first encounter with the Lord. I was in my active addiction and I had just finished trading myself for a $20 pill. And the Lord literally came to me and he said, can I sit with you? I see that you're lonely. And I thought to myself, God, why would you want to sit with me? Didn't you just see what I did? And he said, I see that you're hurting. Can I comfort you? And I was so ashamed 
wept and thought, God, why would you want to comfort me or be anywhere near me? Don't you see how much I've sinned? And he said, it's not the fact that I hate your sin. It's the fact that when you do these things and you sell yourself for drugs, you're giving yourself to people that don't deserve it.